Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome, and today we're going to talk to a minister of the United Church in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, John Joseph Massandrea, and Let's start, first of all, with where you went to school. Well, great. well, welcome, Peter, and it's good to talk to you now. And I went to school, actually, at the University of Toronto, and did a couple of degrees there. started with a, a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry, uh, largely because I was, well, it wasn't always, you never lose being a science geek, uh, chemistry, physics, biology, calculus, algebra, relations, and functions. We're, we're a closer friend at one time. I can barely add now, but I still have a fat passion for, for science. And then, uh, then after that, I did a Master's of Divinity at Emmanuel College uh, in, in Toronto. And then following that, I took a bit a wee bit of a pause. And then a colleague recommended that I do uh, a Master's of Religious uh, and Education. And that was also at Emmanuel College. And it, it, it continues to relate to being a lifelong learner. And then following that, I did a, at uh, Regis College in Toronto, a U of T, was a Master's of Ministry and Spirituality, and that was focusing on being a certified spiritual director. And then just one more uh, moment of exploration happened uh, when I explored doing a, a doctor of ministry at the Chicago Theological Seminary, and that was uh, completed in 2009. And with that background, when did you start going to work? Was it still when you were taking some of these degree programs? I concurrently. So I was uh, ordained in 1989. And so the year I graduated uh, from my MDiv program, I was ordained. And as I, I always uh, sort of uh, in a comedic fashion say, we were shot out of the cannon and we land in, in the far corner of, of Canada, meaning Hearst, Ontario, which is 12 hours north of here. Yes. So then you got all of these degrees. What other forms of uh, work experience did you have? Okay, so uh, related to the church specifically, I was the, uh, let me think, I worked at, the, at Scott Mission, and at the and it was a day camp for children, and that was about 150 uh, young people in the, way back in the summer of, I think it was 1986. And that was a remarkable experience because half the children were uh, Hispanic and the other half were Caribbean. And it was a great gift to walk and grow. And growing up in Etobicoke, where it was suburbia now, I was meeting children from what we call Farmington Park and marginalized background. And then uh, if you call, talk about working in the church, then my summer internship was in, in Harrington Harbor. And that was a fishing village between Summer of 19, in the summer of 1987, and that was, again, quite remarkable. And and where's Harrington Harbor? Uh, as far east in Canada as you can go, almost Newfoundland. So in the middle of the Gulf of St. Lawrence, it took three planes and an hour boat ride to get there. So it was, it was truly remarkable. The town of Harrington had 200 people, 250. Uh, Chevrolet had 200, and Elmer Sound had about 100. 
and so you you there was no roads uh, on the island per, per se. You had to get between the two three points by church boat, and it was an Anglican United Church. Uh, remarkable again. They they said they had three services, but they they sort of fudged that. It actually had five if you count the Anglican eight a.m. communion, the three services and the three points, and the final service of the day at the lodge, the seniors' home. And so by the end of the day, you were you had run 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 a marathon. It was a, but it was a most remarkable remarkable experience. Everyone was over fifty. You called uncle and aunt, and you never knocked on a door. And I t- I learned a whole another culture of being community. Now, even though technically this was in Quebec, uh, they spoke Newfoundlander. And so being from Toronto, as I mentioned, it, I had to learn a whole new language of Newfoundlander. And uh, that, that took about a couple of weeks or so, a month or so. So yeah. that included Irish, I assume. I, you, yeah, probably a bit of that. Yeah, definitely. And I did forget that during my first year of seminary, I did work part-time at the drop-in at Scott Mission for marginalized homeless people who essentially you would open the doors and offer fellowship with, with coffee and muffins. Now, in my second year of seminary, as part of field and also paid accountable ministry, I was youth minister at Timothy Eaton in Toronto. Again, massive cultural shift. Again, uh, it, was, it was quite an honor. Suddenly, uh, there's a, they had seven secretaries, many ministers, and um, more budget than one could possibly imagine. But again, it was sort of stretching uh, my norms or whatever that might be. The, the, the second internship was in the summer of 1988, and that was in Saskatchewan. Again, three-point charge, living in a town of 500, and again, learning about community where your neighbor could be three hours away and still considered your neighbor. I, I still remember one of the wonderful features was everyone waved, uh, unlike here. And uh, and I remember on my on my way to a funeral, I I was got a flat tire, was stopping to try to change the tire, and someone stopped and, and helped me do that. Uh, that doesn't happen in Toronto, <laughs> and this is well before cell phones. And so, so just continuing on with with work experience, I could, again I said I was ordained in 1989, and served an uh, Anglican United Church in Hearst, Ontario, 12 hours north of Toronto, which is largely francophone uh, parish. Um, in the sense that the time wasn't francophone, but the, the parishioners were, were anglophone. And again, Anglican United, again, so again, it was quite remarkable uh, learning about Northern Ontario and truly a great gift. The people in Northern Ontario are treasures. You, you learn so much about being people present with each other. Now, my second uh, pastoral charge was serving what was, what was then called Mono Mills Pastoral Charge, which is located... Uh, at Highway 9 and Airport Road. And again, it was a three-point pastoral charge. The first service was at 9, second service was at 10, 15, and the third service was about 11. So you felt a bit like either a superhero uh, transforming and uh, dashing between points. And uh, again, it was truly a, a great gift to be in that rural, but not, they were, they were essentially gentrified farmers. There was lots of horsey people at Highway 9. And my um, third uh, pastoral charge was uh, called New Horizons, moving sort of closer to Toronto, right near Canada's Wonderland. It was a two-point charge of Maple and Teston. Uh, first service was, I think, was it 9, 9, 15 or so, and then second service was 11. And again, uh, their people, some maybe have sort of been farmers, but again, you're on that edge of rural 
meets urban and very Italian, but very, in some ways diverse. There's a large uh, Medea mosque in that, in that town, which again was quite a great gift to connect with and be part of. But again, it was that sense of uh, being in, in serving people in a, in a delightful job. But my fourth uh, palace charge was uh, Metropolitan United in Toronto, where I served for 19 years. And I guess the great gift of going to Metropolitan was it was the first church that I was affirming that I ever served in. And in a sense, I'm an openly gay minister now, uh, uh, but going to Metropolitan certainly made that much easier and, and, a, great, and a great honor and privilege to serve there. Now in uh, 2019, I felt a call to, uh, to for change of past relations and arrived at Manor Road United Church. And here I am now almost upon my third year serving in what we call Midtown Toronto. And I think that more and more or less covers my paid accountable ministry experience to date. So John Joseph, tell us about some of the programs or events that take place in Manor Road. Well, it, it's Peter, it's interesting you say that because obviously all of us have had to pivot. I mean, I wouldn't say pivot, we're, 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 we're doing a, a, a quadruple axle uh, using the language of, this, of the Winter Olympics. Quite, I think we're way beyond pivoting. We're doing quadruple axle. I think it's a better description. And so as most of us, when we think of what was it like in 2020, well, uh, business, church life happened, and then all of a sudden we, we shifted. And I would say we were all channeling Cecil B. DeMille, uh, Steven Spielberg, and George Lucas, because suddenly we had to adapt to programming online. So presently, well, we uh, beyond the Sunday morning service, we have a book study focusing on justice and poverty at 9:30 at Manor Road. We have, if you start sort of then continuing to the moving towards the week, we have weekly programs. We have Wednesday midday prayer, and then we have a Rosary Society, which is sort of an interfaith group started by one of our 20-somethings, and then uh, once a month, we have the Labyrinth service that's online, and then on Thursdays, we have what we call the Bible at the Manor at 3, and then 4.30, we have Yoga at the Manor, and which is conducted by one of our lay people, and then we have on Fridays, which started maybe about mid, almost a month, month or two into COVID, Friday afternoon speaker series, where we usually have the theme speaker ranging for this Example, this Friday, we have a life of bees for a person who I know is going to talk about their experience of working with bees. And last Friday, I shared my experiences of going to Thailand, as well as we had Jordana Wright talk about Activate Space, where again, churches can, and, uh, can help other activate and bring other programs in. And I guess what we have also is obviously our meetings. If you think of other programs, we have our monthly, what we call Heart of the Manor, where we touch base and listen to what, what concerns are happening in our church. And also we have once a month our UCW and on another day that we have a virtual tea at the manor. And then, of course, we have our executive council and the trustees meet here and there and sometimes stewards. But and certainly uh, what we do, we touch base uh, in, in person or online with various committees and staff people. It's quite a gift to be part of. Manor Road has a a wonderful director of music, Tom Marcaccini, and a children's uh, youth and uh, programming minister, Allison Marcaccini, his wife, and our director of administration, uh, Marian Eschker, and also our property person, uh, Manuel Ferreira. Again, uh, there's a great sense of, of synergy and working together. 
So yeah, right now I did, did forget to mention Little Rainbow Fish, which happens Wednesdays and Fridays. And that uh, uh, now I speak essentially for guardians and parents, grandmothers and uh, nannies, uh, for children and programming. They kind of bring something outside. So now they're actually gathering outside, probably about 10, 20 different households in, in a safe environment. So that continues on Wednesdays and Fridays. Oh, we have, I forgot to mention, Youth of the Manor. That's every other week. So one week we'll do uh, a faith encounter and the other alternate will do something social. And uh, I think that covers that part of it. So, Don Joseph, one of the things, I've been in a mosque, I've been in several Mennonite and United Churches, and my observation is between 8 in the morning and 8 at night, they're using about 20% of their space. Yes. And I guess my question is, what about Manor Road? How much are you using your space? What percentage? Well, I have to think about that because we have a daycare in, the, in our lower level. That's five days a week. And then above me is a program where they're having for, for primary children, about 10, 15. That's once and twice a week. Then we also have brownies uh, once a week and then we have karate twice a week there's a stagecoach uh, drama dance group that meets twice a week there's also a dog training program that meets once on saturdays and let me think did i leave anybody out i think that covers so i would say uh because we we got rid of our pews a couple of years ago it really liberated our sanctuary space. You know, we went to the just having people. So what it does, and we added an elevator, and so it makes it very wheelchair friendly. So, you know, having COVID uh, regulation, uh, pandemic uh, protocols in place, we're able to have still a fair bit of programming. And I would say, if you think percentage, what do you mean per day or per week? Per week. I would say we probably use our space 70, 80% per week. And that's because um, most of our church programs are online. So these are, uh, it becomes more of a community hub in that sense. Yeah, I would say, yeah. Well, the reason I mention that is my experience is about 20% yes. is used in uh, most of the communities of faith. And with the Community Innovation Hub, that's our objective to show communities of faith how they can use more of their space and how they can engage with the community better. But I want to move forward and I want to say, based on you've moved around a little bit, three years from now, where are you going to be and what are you going to be doing? You, you ask a very good question. And uh, I would say, if God taps me on the shoulder, when, when the, the, do the door opens in a whole new direction. But my, my hope is, it's interesting, you mentioned because uh, having experienced the insight of Sean Loney twice, there was a seminar at Five Oaks, and probably you know Sean Loney. I, I call him the guru. He's our Dalai Lama of social enterprise. And there was also one conducted by the Toronto United Church Council up in Newmarket. And both times I, I, I went away saying, okay, you know the expression, drink the Kool-Aid? I've, I've way beyond drinking the Kool-Aid because one of the areas I connect with is the Rotary Club of Toronto. So I guess in three years' time, my hope would be I would be uh, connecting with or being the catalyst for one or two or a few or more social enterprises. 
And, and why I say that is because to me that connects with faith in action, but sustainable faith in action. And listening to what Sean Loney was able to do, he just pushed the envelope. And there was never a no. It was just, okay, what, what detour do we need to take to get there? Okay, the bridge, the water's running too quickly here, but how do we build a stronger bridge? Or how do we find another place to cross that water? And how do we open that door? And how do we, and, and, and it's always about empowering people as you probably know from Sean Loney, uh, what he does. And to me, that would be uh, the way, way moving forward. And, and I see this again and again. Again, it's about helping people who have great ideas, but know how to maybe increase their capacity or, or realize that, okay, they do have a great idea. How do we en enable that to move forward in, in a very powerful way? And because part of it, I would say, social enterprises, you know, is 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 doing just that and it's not a new new thought and when i having it's interesting because having just come back from thailand witnessing what people do there so they set up these little food stands on the side of in the sidewalk and then they set up tables and people enjoy breakfast or, or lunch and i thought to myself well there's a country that gets it and part of it would, would be for in canada for that to happen we'd have to maybe push at the edges of our health concerns, sorry, municipal health concerns, and push at the edges of our zoning limitations, because then we could do that uh, and do what they do there and do that here, because what that does is create many versions of social enterprise, and uh, to really to realize about that possibility. Well, John Joseph, with why I mentioned the uh, percentages phase, I went to a Mennonite church down by Kitchener, Ontario. And they had a full-day session on repurposing the church. Mm. And they had all the stakeholders from the community there. And then the lady took me on a tour, and she admitted they're using 20% of the space. Yeah. And then outside, they had four acres of land that was totally unused. Yes. And along comes a member of the congregation a former member of the congregation and said, here's 15 million, I want you to build a new church. But uh, the, the benefit of that one day session, and I outlined the community innovation hub, but there were all stakeholders, there were business people, there were nonprofits, there were charities, there were members of the congregation. It was a very uh, full day of coming up with ideas to repurpose the church, and that was uh, that was pretty cool. You you remind me of I think it was called Peace in the City. It was a book written by Mark Gornick about the Baltimore community, about how the church was the catalyst, not just for the church, but for health health care, for employment, for education, and. And, and, and what you're talking about in many ways is, is just that. I mean, how, how can we work? And sometimes it, it takes everyone coming together, like you say, the stakeholders, to see outside and see the potential. Because you think of, again, all, all our churches, all our communities of faith. And I mean, I'm just guessing how much Manor Road is used. But, but I would say one of the things we did when we did renovate, instead of building, I call it high-end townhomes, we, we sold 
the, the portion of what was the CE wing to the city for a park so that the community could have a place to gather and be. And it's, 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 it's amazing because though there are other parks, but you see it's always got people uh, there and uh, of many ages playing and doing and being, and, and it's very powerful. Okay, I have a, a general question for you. Why don't people go into communities of faith in other religions to listen to the services and the messages and vice versa. Why doesn't the United Church go into a synagogue and watch a service in the synagogue or vice versa? Why is the, why are the the communities of faith not acting, interacting. It's interesting you asked me that question. You may or may not know this. I'm very much into the interfaith movement, so to speak. I, I co-chair the Parliament of World Religions uh, when it gathered here in Toronto, and I co and I co-chair Sharing Sacred Spaces Toronto, where for the last three years it's a project that came out of the U U.S. and the idea of visiting different faith communities. We did this virtually and learning from each other. And I remember in my Emmanuel College days, as part of our uh, one of the Friday the Friday course, we actually did what you're talking about. And we did visit a mosque, and we did visit uh, a shul, and actually we did visit a Buddhist temple, the one up in Bayview. But why don't we? You know, I mean, big question. Why don't I remember when I was in uh, New Horizons? And they're wondering that there was a, the Ahmadiyya mosque, and I remember visiting the the mosque because they invited us in. I wonder if it's we go through periods where we do that, and sometimes we don't, because I hear of some United Churches that easily do that, but there's almost as if, and I'm, I wouldn't call it racism; I would just call it more phobic, and uh, maybe hesitation. And do people know people of other faith traditions? Yes, no. And is there is there just a pattern falling into familiar familiar uh, a road where we only visit the people we know? When you think of this January, and and you make me think of this, we had the week of prayer for Christian unity, where we thought we were pat ourselves on the back. Oh, isn't aren't we good when we go visit the Catholics and go visit the Anglicans? But I would say, to your point, we need to push the envelope on that and and think way outside the box and visit. Not just visit, become friends with the shul, friends with the majid, friends with the the, the, the mandir in in, in uh, Regent Park where we live in Cavisham, and you have again a Gandapathy temple. It's a mandir right around the corner, and part of our sharing sacred space we visit that, and part of our site visits we visited two of the majids, and then we visited uh, Our Lady of Lords, and then we visited uh, a gurdwara, a Sikh gurdwara. And then several others. But again, when you opened the door, it was, it was interesting. We randomly showed up at the Gurdwara. But my good friend of mine, he can actually speak Hindi. And so he was able to speak to the person at the door. And that just opened the door right away. And But we, we need to do more of that because we can't see our communities in isolation. And, I, and to me, interfaith is just that because the sharing sacred spaces is, is about getting to know each other and creating a justice project that we virtu mutually work on together. 
and it's been a great gift to walk in that road and see where we go with that. But it cuts across the socioeconomic and cultural barriers when we actually do that, when we go into the shul, when we go into the, the mandir, and when we go into the, the, the majid and the gurdwara, and the list goes on. And, and, and so I, I, think, I think it would be a remarkable, not just an idea, a plan to... So let's talk briefly about your husband. Does he understand that you go in 20 different directions and create new things? Uh, yes, yes, he does. And I'll, I'll use the expression, we're, we're, we're both, uh, I know you use ADD, okay. <laughs> He's, uh, he has his own uh, projects and uh, things that he gets involved with in, in, in his own way. But, uh, yeah, for example, he... Um, had been an event planner so much, but uh, that, that sort of came to a, a close with, with COVID and has been helping a good friend of ours go from stage in her stage four ovarian cancer and walk with her. And he's been uh, learning, he's been baking bread up a storm, all these different kinds, gives them to the neighbors, and everyone's happy when he shows up with the loaf of bread. And uh, yeah, and as a personal trainer, but and we've been married, we were married at Metropolitan in 2004. And it's interesting, we, we, we're both different but similar. We complement each other because we both have minds that are that the imagination never shut off. Let's put it that way. Okay. Hey, John Joseph, you uh, you have had quite a career and it's just beginning. And uh, I think, based on your experiences, you should be writing a book. And I can see that on the horizon in the next five years. So, 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 Peter, it's interesting you mentioned that because when I did my sabbatical in Ireland for three months, one of my hopes is to do just that, focusing on the, the title The Maiden, the Midwife, and the Crone, calling on the, the image of uh, the, the Trine Goddess, which is, transcends Christian experience. Again, that we are all maidens birthing, and that we're all a midwife helping to birth, and we're all crone coming to that wisdom. And if you call on those three, stages of life now for men and women we create a harmony and a balance where we celebrate past present and future but see it not as as, as a linear but as a circular and in that moment we we i, I learned this from the irish where i, I don't know if you've ever been to ireland they never lost their pre-christian mysticism they bring it with them and there was a white witch who went to mass every day. We, we sort of talk about that, but that relates back to your interfaith. When we can hold these, what appears to be solitudes, as, as on a table, as like a banquet table, that's a gift that we sort of weave together. Yeah. John, John Joseph has, he's a traveler, he's a speaker, he's a creator of ideas. And I thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Peter.